You're clean, aren't you? Except for your tower. You're a tower junkie, Roland. Hello and welcome to Tower Junkies, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Tower Junkies is a podcast devoted to Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series. We discuss the themes, characters, and mythology of the series in Palaver episodes and review the books and comic series in Keth episodes. We also discuss King novels related to The Dark Tower, non-Tower King novels, TV and film adaptations of King's work, and the latest news about potential Dark Tower-related adaptations. You can find more of our work at TowerJunkiesPod.com and follow us on every level of social media at TowerJunkiesPod. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and with me today, as always, a long time ago at least, <laughs> is my co-host and comate, Tiny. Hi, Tiny. Hey, guys. Hey. Uh, how's it going? It's going well. Nice. How, uh, how did your... Uh, How's this hiatus been for you? It's been fine. It's been fine. Nice. Um, yeah, a lot of not a lot of kinging going on. Right, right. If you will, but mm-hmm. well, we are here to rectify that. We are. Yes, and uh, yeah. Speaking of which, today on the podcast, we're going to be reviewing episodes five, six, and seven of Hulu's original series, inspired by the work of Stephen King, uh, Castle Rock. Uh, Castle Rock was a show that was on Hulu last year. <laughs> And we got through reviewing about half of it, uh, just shy of half of it, and before we went on our impromptu hiatus. Uh, but now we're back, and right now we're gonna kind of we were doing two two reviews every episode of the podcast. But now, for sake of time, uh, we're just gonna review. We're breaking up the last six episodes of the of the season into two podcast episodes. So we're reviewing episodes five, six, and seven. Uh, so before we begin with that, uh, check-ins. Tiny, it's been a while. Yes. Um, do you have any Stephen King check-ins for us? Um, you know, I can't really remember where I was when we <laughs> stopped recording. Um, I, the latest, the latest thing I finished was, um, Elevation? What was that called? Mm-hmm. The Elevation. Sh- Elevation, yeah. yeah. I can't even remember. Yeah. Um, I haven't read or listened to that one yet. Right. So I finished the new, the newest novella. Mm-hmm. Um, and I finished listening to Tommy Knockers as well several months ago. Um, that's all I've done. It's been, I feel like it's been a while since I've done anything King related. Wow. Or watched any stuff or read, mm-hmm. read anything. Um, it's, it's been a little while. Mm-hmm. Are you, wanting to or excited to change that yeah because i think for the podcast we're gonna talk about some other stuff i think we're gonna watch some movies and there's a new stephen king movie coming out to theaters very soon oh yeah here in like six or seven weeks six or seven weeks yeah uh pet cemetery pet cemetery right so yeah we'll be talking about that a little bit Totally. Hopefully the book, the old movie, and the new movie. Yes. I think we're going to do. That is on the docket. A trilogy of pet cemeterying. Yes. So. A lot of dead cats. Yes. Um, so that's going to be the best exciting. kind of cats. Yeah. What's that? Nothing. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the official mascot of the Obsessive Viewer <laughs> podcast. Yeah, well. Is, is a pizza roll hat. Yeah, um, whatever. Anyway, uh, <laughs> So yeah, so that's that's exciting. What what's what's up next? Like, what's the next thing you're going to listen to or read? Um, I'm not sure. Probably, I think I have. I want to say I have Firestarter. 
Hmm. What else do I have? I have like two of two King books on my Audible. Hmm. Um, yeah, how many? Spoiler alert! I canceled my Audible. I think that mm-hmm. that happened during the hiatus. I canceled my Audible. Yeah, um, which is kind of unfortunate, but at the same time, it allowed me to. Um, do AMC A list. True. So I have the Talisman, Needful Things, and Firestarter. How many Um, overall books on Audible do you have for Stephen King? uh, Like, like you can if you if your app is similar to mine, you can just search and type in Stephen King, and it should have like library and how many are in the store. Uh, one, two, three, 12, 13. I have 13. Oh, interesting. Seven, yeah. Do you want to guess how many I have? 21. Oh, good guess. Really? Yeah, it's 40. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <You> dick. Wow, <laughs> I 40. Yeah, I went on kind of a tear. The thing with that is that on Audible, if you have the Kindle version of the book, like obviously like on an audiobook without a membership is like 30 bucks. Right. Uh but if you have from most of the most of Stephen King's work if you have like the Kindle version of it which I have a ton of uh Stephen King books on Kindle um the audio the Audible version is only 13 bucks. Okay. And like my rationale is that like okay, well, I can use a credit that costs $14 or $15. Or I can just spend thirteen dollars on a book, yeah, uh, that I already have. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, forty, and I'll just kind of go into my Stephen King check-in if you want. Yeah, definitely. So um, I also canceled my Audible subscription, and I'm probably gonna. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Today I re-upped it. Um, okay. Just because I really wanted it, because um, I I've listened to the audiobook for it, but it is not a. Legit copy. Um, uh, okay. So I do have like a file that has like a ton of audiobooks, but I want them all. Like I, I'm a collector. I want them all in the, in the Audible app. Right. And what I've been doing is recently I've been listening to audiobooks in the background at, while I work because my work is like the job that I have is just very data entry specific, and mm-hmm. it's just like I, it's a lot of just plugging in numbers and typing stuff, and so, uh. For a long time, I was listening to podcasts and everything. And then, like, I'm kind of going through a kick now where it's like, okay, well, I don't know if I can focus my full attention on an audiobook and do my work. Hmm. But I can play an audiobook for a book that I'm familiar with right. <laughs> that I've read before and have it play in the background. So, like, in the past two weeks, I've listened to Carrie, Salem's Lot, uh, Under the Dome. And yeah, those the only three. Hmm. But I bought it specifically because I want to do that with it. Nice. Um, I want to do it. And um, <laughs> sorry. Um, so, but kind of an addendum to that, I started the Tommy Knockers today. Nice. Yeah, and that was my first. This is my first time listening to it. I started listening to it when you started listening to it. Yeah. Um, uh, but I just kind of tapered off. Um, hiatus. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, but it's, it's interesting cause I got like three and a half hours into it and like I could hold my attention and do my work and everything. So mm-hmm. I think I'm going to finish that pretty soon. Nice. 
Yeah, so I'm excited. That's good. Yeah, uh, that's really my only Stephen King check, and I've been, uh, yeah, yeah, that's about it. I bought Revival in paperback and okay. it in paperback too, because I I'm a a sucker. Yeah, um, <clears throat> a collector. Yeah, a collector. Yeah, yeah. Like I wanted to buy the it uh. Uh, 2017 movie tie-in edition because I mm. they're are presumably going to have another tie-in edition this year. Yeah, for it chapter two, and I kind of want I kind of want that as a collection. Like, yeah, both of them. Totally. Um, so that's my Stephen King check-in for the week, and that's our Stephen King check-ins for the week. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so let's dive into our reviews of Castle Rock episodes five through seven. Yep. Uh, Castle Rock for those who don't know. Uh, it's based on the stories of Stephen King. The series will intertwine characters and themes from the fictional town of Castle Rock. Um, we're going to go episode by episode. We're going to do episode five, six, and seven. Um, we will be spoiling the episodes. So if you haven't seen, if you haven't seen Castle Rock at this point, why are you listening to the podcast? Yeah, really. Um, but also if you haven't seen these three episodes, pause the podcast, go watch them on Hulu, come back and listen to our reviews of them. So, uh, you've been warned. <laughs> so let's dive into it. So, uh, episode five, Harvest. Um, it aired on Hulu on August eighth, twenty eighteen. Uh, director is Andrew Bernstein, and writer is Lila Bayak. Uh, the premise is a stranger comes to town. Castle Rock honors Sheriff Pangborn. So overall, Tiny, what did you think of this episode? Um, pretty good. Um, I don't think there were any, any like weak episodes in this whole season. I agree. So, um, pretty good. I think, um, the whole, uh, not sure like what the theme of the episode is or anything like mm-hmm. that, but just the, um, the ongoing mystery of the kid or whatever and yeah. the boy and what his deal is is just, growingly and just increasingly intriguing um and this adds to that obviously um the fact that he you know he's out now and it's like Mm -hmm. it kind of adds to the tension and the frankly the kind of like the fear the kind of horror aspect of the show is i think a lot of it revolves around him because he's so mysterious and so many bad things happen around him um and then just the the also, the ongoing discovery of the the past of uh, Pangborn and, mm-hmm. and who he is and what he's done in the past is, is again just really driving the story a lot. So, yeah. Yep. And uh, this episode has some more. Um, I'll, we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. I think I've I've got a ton of notes here, but I want to touch on the. Uh, Okay, let's let's start with the the kid being released. And this was something that didn't I don't I wouldn't say didn't connect with me, but like in the moment I I found it interesting that like there was reports of the wildfire and everything that was going on. And like in retrospect, that's like okay, well that's the natural response to the kid being released from prison. Like it is mm. literally like setting the world on fire. Yeah. Um but in the moment, I was like, "Is that gonna like spread to Castle Rock? Like, what? Like, how is this gonna come into play later in the the season?" And it never does. Yeah. Um. But I reconcile that by thinking that well, it's because the kid was released, and it's just showing that he has chaos surrounding him. Like, that. right. Um. Did you pick up on any of that, or did you? How did you? Did you have any takes on that? I mean, I, 
again, it's all mysterious and it's mm-hmm. not like there's nothing blatant that says, you know, he caused the fire or like it's because he was released, but you can't ignore the, you can't just chalk it up to coincidence, I think. Right. And so that's, it's, it's part of the mystery. So mm-hmm. I did pick up on it, but it is a little interesting that it wasn't, it wasn't really addressed that much later on. Right. It just kind of, it's like just another crazy freaking thing that happened in this town. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah. Another thing I want to bring up is since the kid is released and everything, um, he kind of makes some rounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, is that the episode where he, uh, he, let me check here. He just goes into that house where that family yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, that's one of the most disturbing parts of the whole season. Abs- that's what I was going to say. It was so eerie. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that they chose to use audio as opposed to showing us mm-hmm. was even, even more effective somehow. Yep. Which sounds strange, you know? Um, but the, yeah, the, just the audio of the, the conflict, uh, you know, the family fighting and <laughs> killing each other basically, yeah. uh, is just horrifying. It's, it's really horrifying. Um, but yeah, that, that jumped out at me and I wonder if I, I mean, I have it in my, my notes. Like, does he, I, I don't know if it's, um, if those things happen, like the fire and mm-hmm. the 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 prisoner that he was bunked up with being killed, and the prison guard going crazy, and these people killing each other, mm-hmm. is he is he doing that intentionally? Is he unknowingly doing it? Is it just a result of him, his presence? Like I, it's mysterious, but I don't know. Part of me wonders. I feel like they give you little snippets of his inner monologue or what his thoughts are, and it's like sometimes I feel like. He's intentionally like causing these things or doing these things on purpose or like he has no control over them. Mm-hmm. And so like is is he the source as to why the town is so horrible and like why so many bad things happen there because he's been kept in that in the cage in the bottom of Shawshank for so many years? Like I don't Yeah. Like it's I, it's, it's just it's it's the, it's part of the mystery and I'm mm-hmm. I'm not sure what to think. I'm curious if anybody has any theories. For me, it's one of the most compelling parts of the whole season. Right. Um, and what I had fun doing this time around, cause there is, we do get some, some semblance of ambiguous closure, if that's, if that's my rap name, but, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, at the end of the season, but yeah. it's still left open ended. It's ambiguous right. and everything. And that's, it's interesting. Um, well, and like towards the end of the episode when he, the kid and Pangborn meet in the forest. Yeah. Oh my God. That scene, which was just like, Ooh, like edge of your seat shit. So good. Like he, the, the kid clearly has some idea of what's going on. Yeah. And like he, he can talk and he can perceive mm-hmm. things and it's just like, but he seems like this deaf mute kid 90% of the time. Yeah. But then like he, he runs into Pangborn and he remembers him from mm-hmm. him opening the trunk 30 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I, it's just weird to me that he doesn't speak up. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, what's going on? Like, tell us what's going on. I don't. Well, is he just like some silent harbinger who just mm. brings chaos and death? And it's it's compelling, and I like the direction they're taking it. But I'm kind of I'm getting to the point where in episode six or episode five, like this, mm-hmm. and then continuing into six and seven, like I want some. I'm getting to the point where like I want some answers. Like I need oh, really? I need to know more. And it's kind of it's kind of grading on me a little little bit or wearing me down a little bit and i'm kind of it's starting to get to me 
See, in in preparation for this for the relaunch of the podcast, really, I rewatched the season the the season from the beginning, mm. and made my notes like in in chron- chronology. Like I I rewatched from the beginning, and then when I got to episode five, I started making my notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I will say is that I like that. <laughs> We've made no secret of our love for Lost in this uh, in this podcast. It automatically made me think of Lost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like the ambiguity, the the quiet, like non-answer, like yeah. mystery wrapped in a riddle kind of thing. Uh, just it's so Lostian. Like mm-hmm. it is. It is the most lost thing, and uh, it. Like, like in this episode, I was wondering, cause I couldn't really remember how the season ended. Uh, well, I not necessarily couldn't remember how it ended, but I couldn't remember, uh, if there were parts that it, uh, that the, that the show clarified in, in the end run of the season. But like, okay, this episode starts, um, one of the early scenes is a flashback to, uh, Warden Lacey spouting his religious zealotry to the kid and he's trying to justify his actions and why he has him held captive and everything and um first of all i love that because he it's expressing this doubt that he has of whether or not what he's did what he's done is right because like you said the kid doesn't talk like he yeah he doesn't know for certain that he's you know the devil it's just all based on faith right um but another thing about that is that, like, you have this expression of doubt, and then Warden Lacey touches the kid. Um, I think, I don't remember how, like, I think he just pats him on the shoulder or something like that. Um, and like, that made me think, like, I was trying to, like, I was trying to piece together, like, was this, like, the morning that he went and killed himself? Like, is that why he killed himself? Like, how did that, hmm. like, did that come into play somehow? And I feel like the show was misdirecting us or try, like wanted us to feel that way and feel that ambiguity because it's, it wants to keep us on our toes with the truth of the kid and everything. Hmm. Um, but yeah, and then we get him wandering the town and the family murder thing, just freaking crazy. Yeah. Um, Gosh. yeah. And let's, let's talk about, well, really quick, the wildfire when they're at the ceremony for Pangborn, uh, there's this creepiness to like all the townspeople with masks on. Yeah. Uh, like they're just medical masks. It's for, it's because of the wildfire. There's nothing supernatural or creepy about it. Like on the surface, it's just, it's like a, it's a piece of set design, but there's something unsettling about it nonetheless. Totally. Um, but one of the big things in this episode that I want to touch on is we get more backstory for Jackie Torrance. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So this is where we get like her origin. Mm-hmm. basically she's the uh she's the niece of jack torrance and um <laughs> she tells the kid that her uncle tried to axe murder his family um so she like her real name i forget what her real name is bernadette or something uh, it's something like that it's not yeah. bernadette it's like daniel i don't know but anyway she's like so i took jackie the name Jackie Torrance is kind of a fuck you to my parents. Right. Um, which is great. But like in that moment, how did you feel about that backstory? Well, I'll be, I will be disappointed if it's just an Easter egg, quote unquote Easter oh, egg. Interesting. Like, I hope it goes somewhere. I mm-hmm. hope it's relevant to the future of the show. And I, I hope, I hope she's relevant. You know what I'm saying? Like she hasn't, her presence hasn't had much of an impact on the show. Mm-hmm. She's just kind of there. Like, Things just kind of get bounced off of her. 
Yeah. Um, she's not, she's not a super relevant character yet, but I think, I, I hope, I hope she's not just in the show because she's Jack Torrance's niece. Like, I hope, I hope, I hope she's not just just an Easter egg and that's just a dropped fact about her. I hope she's, she's significant later on because, because she's Jack Torrance's niece. Mm hmm. I guess I don't know if I'm wording that right or Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And what's interesting is like the show itself is an anthology show, so like next yeah. season's gonna be presumably a new cast, new story. I think they actually said it's gonna be a whole new cast, whole new story and okay. everything. But I would hope that given the way that Jackie Torrance is kind of she's kind of like the one who's I wouldn't say in on everything, but she's like the one that she's kind of the audience conduit. Like she's the Stephen King fan conduit. Yeah. Uh, she's kind of like Jamie Kennedy and scream. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a very, yeah, that's a, that's a really good comparison. Yeah. Um, and, uh, not to jump ahead too much, but like the, the season ends with her, like there's a, there's a scene, a mid credit scene with her that like it, when I saw it, we'll, we'll talk about it the next episode, but, when I saw it, it just floored me so much. Um, but I think it would be cool if like, what if, she, what if she's the constant of the anthology se- series? Yeah, that, that would be interesting. Yeah. Like what if she's like, what if she's brought back for season two and she's just kind of doing her Jackie Torrance thing, just walking yeah, around and stuff. Right. Um, or maybe she's younger or older. Yeah. Played by a different actress or something. That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I will say, and this is kind of, this, this will be debunked or kind of, uh, my, my, uh, issues with this will be addressed next, next time on the podcast. But, um, in the moment when I watched this episode and she's telling the kid like that her uncle tried to ax murder his family, like I, it just, in my head, I was just like, I really wish she didn't say ax murder. Cause that's the movie. That's not the book. In the book, he yeah. had a croquet mallet. Croquet mallet. Yeah. And like, I, like, I was so, like, it just, it just, it, it bothered, it, I don't know. I, it bothered me a little bit cause I was just like, I want it to be, you know, Stephen King, the book, yeah. not the movie. But Jack Nicholson with the axe mm-hmm. chopping down the door and saying, here's Johnny is probably the most iconic thing related to The Shining. Yo, 100%. Yeah. Totally so. agree. And like I said, in, in an episode to come, uh, like it's paid off in an interesting way. So it's like, it negates my complaints with that. But mm-hmm. in the moment I was just like, man, why couldn't she just say, right. you know, I agree. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned, um, Pangborn's, uh, ceremony thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, what kind of jumped out, to, sort of jumped out to me about it is, um, he uses an analogy of like a ma- magician palming an ace or mm-hmm. something like that. And I thought it was funny cause he's, you know, he's being presented as this pillar of the community. He's being honored and stuff like that. But I feel like he's a guy who did, did some shady shit in the past. Yeah. And it's funny cause like he says, you know, I, I never would have been a good magician. I can't, I, I could never palm an ace or whatever. And I was like, right. I feel like that's kind of exactly what he did. <laughs> um, and it was just kind of a funny, you know, uh, mm-hmm. wolf in sheep's clothing kind of moment, sort of. Not that he's yeah. not, I think he's kind of an ambiguous character. Like, yeah. I don't, I think he had good intentions with mm-hmm. almost everything he did. Yeah. But I think some of the stuff he did could be very questionable. Yeah. From his perspective, he has gone 
decades just believing that he covered up a murder that was committed by a kid. Right. Um, like he was under that assumption and he also, um, saw the kid. (laughs) Right. He stopped Warden Lacey and like he's been wrestling. I I like the juxtaposition of Warden Lacey and, uh, Pangborn in that they're both kind of wrestling with like, did they do the right thing? Like, yeah. Did he like just let this, I think he's the way he says it is like, did I, did I let this monster, go with this kid in a trunk yeah um right yeah or is the kid the monster exactly right yeah and i think he and and i think his attitude towards the kid reflects that because i feel like he's very antagonistic towards him mm-hmm. he understands that he i think he understands that he can get some answers yeah from him but he's constantly calling him an asshole and a right. bastard and just cursing at him and it's like mm-hmm. he's pissed off because he doesn't know how he's supposed to feel yeah so he's automatically he's you know he's kind of a tough tough kind of guy and he's got that you know gruffness grittiness to him Mm -hmm. and so he's just like he's like all right dick what are we doing like come on like he's very yeah he's just he's just very uh standoffish because he doesn't understand what's going on and a person like him who doesn't understand something is antagonistic towards it right and it's i think it's like kind of the perfect attitude for him to have Mm -hmm. it's Um, very gruff gruff yeah yeah so i've I've, i appreciate (laughs) uh scott glenn Mm-hmm. Working with uh, Skarsgård. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, there's a scene in this episode where he is talk, where Pangborn is talking to, um, I believe he's talking to Henry, saying that he's talking about ha- when he came back uh, to Castle Rock. It was after he left, and uh, like, I'll just I'll just run through basically what he's alluding to and everything is that he says that he he left Castle Rock and then he got a call. Saying that, uh, saying that someone heard gunfire at Ruth's house. And so he came to Castle, he came to Castle Rock, knocked on the door, and, uh, the way he puts it is that, uh, your mother came to the door looking like she'd been through hell and back. She put her arms around me and begged me not to leave. And like, fuck, I love that. Yeah. Because, like, in, in episode five, in Harvest, like, you just, like, that's just building their relationship. That's building the history of Ruth and, and Pangborn. But when you, when you go back and watch that, knowing the context of the scene, um, given what happens in episode eight, the queen, or episode seven, the queen, um, it's just, it's beautiful. It's, it's really just great. Yeah. Um, really love that storytelling. Um, and that, that narrative device. Um, yeah. There was something I noticed, and this is just kind of a, a sort of a nerdy thing I noticed, I guess. But um, at two different points in the episode, the kid has like a kind of like a neurological test that he goes through. Yeah, and so does Henry. Yeah, and they there's the scenario where the doctor asks them to repeat a, uh, five words, mm-hmm. and it can be in any order. And it's the same. It's the same five words for both of them. Okay. Yeah. It's the the words are f- face velvet red church and family. Okay. And it's like they both. I think it's the same words. I can't remember, but like I think they both say them in the same order, but it's not the same order that. Oh, the, interesting. That the doctor read it off to them. Huh. Like I think the doctor said face velvet red church family, but they both said face velvet church red family or something like that and it's like 
I don't know if there's any significance that there. Is, is that nerdy? Is that any? I, don't, I didn't know if that was an Easter egg or maybe somebody picked something up from that. Um, I, that's really interesting. Yeah, like the best I could think is that it could be kind of a maybe not hint, but kind of a some somewhat of a clue to the structure of episode nine, um, which we'll get to next time. Okay. Um, interesting. I don't know. It's just something I noticed. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, let's see. Okay, so we get the scene where the kid is standing on the roof, um, and he's kind of like hearing memories of like Zalewski and and the dog from the ceremony that freaked out when when Ruth jumped uh, from the bridge, and like he tells Molly, "I shouldn't be here. I should still be in the hole." And I I kind of like how the kid has this, at least this presumption or like he's putting forth this this idea of um uh this this conflict he has over this supposed power he may have to to create chaos around him i just i kind of mm-hmm. like that because it really again it goes back to the mis the mystery of the show and how it's really uh kind of contingent on whether or not we believe the kid or like what we think the kid is yeah, that's true. I didn't, I didn't read into that that much or pick up oh, on that. Yeah. I remember that. Hmm. I remember that part. But and he also, I don't want to jump ahead, but he mentioned something about in the next episode. I think in episode six about like there should be a monument built to Warden Lacey, yeah. and which is a creepy like such a cool scene Stockholm syndrome type thing to say. It's like what the well, hell. Okay, that's interesting. We'll we'll talk about that because yeah. I think you may have misread it. I think I did. Yeah, yeah or maybe I misread it. I wasn't I sure know. what to think about it. Okay, that's that's the thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Okay. But let's get to the end of this episode. Yeah. Um. First of all, Alan Pangborn is drunk by the bridge, and there's a scene like you see the plaque that they have for the for the bridge, and it says Alan Pangborn Memorial Bridge, which I thought was weird because he's not dead. <laughs> that is weird. Yeah, I have no idea why it's a memorial bridge. But nonetheless, he takes it down and throws it into the into the uh, river or lake or whatever the river. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I I just I like that. But we get the big set the the big end scene is him confronting the kid in the woods. Yeah, um, and like you said, the, don't look at me like that, fucker. You know me. Yeah, just God, he's such a badass. He really is. Um, so there is there is a line that he says where he's talking about how he was like burdened with like whether or not he like who the monster was in that scenario. Right. Um and he says like did you pick up on the it reference? I don't think I did. Okay. Uh Alan has been burdened with the choice he made 27 years ago. Um uh, which I love that because 27 years the it, you know, it comes back every 27 years. Yeah. Um and just like the added meta-ness of Bill Skarsgård being the kid and, and Pennywise is just, it's great. Right. Um, and there was a theory that like a friend of mine said that like, they thought like they were so certain that, uh, the big reveal was going to be that he was actually Pennywise. Oh, okay. Um, and that it tied into, to it. But, wow. Yeah. But anyway, um, the dialogue goes that he, he asks if he's the devil and the kid says no. And I love, I love this line because, uh, Scott Glenn's just like, then what the fuck are you? Yeah. He's just so, like you said, he's so, so gruff and, uh, standoffish. Right. Um, but the scene ends with, like, Pangborn could have killed him, mm-hmm. <laughs> but 
the kid is like, I can save her or I can help her regarding Ruth. And like the, that last shot of the episode with the kid and Alan just silhouetted by like this moonlit fog in the woods was just like, I will, I want to frame that shot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, what did you make of that final scene, that confrontation? And do you think, uh, like how much of that do you think is the kid playing Pangborn? I see. I still just don't know what the hell the kid is. I don't know what he's too mysterious to me. And like, mm. I, like I said, I'm, it's, it's grading on me a little bit That's so throughout the season. Yeah. Um, which is hypocritical of me to say for, like you said, this is very lost, Lostian. Right. Um, but then again, it's been like eight years since we watched Lost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although so. I am watching Lost for Obsessive Viewer. Right. But I, I think it's funny because I, I feel like, uh, the way that Pangborn is reacting to him is kind of how I'm reacting to him. Like, what the fuck are you? <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm kind of feeling the same way. Um, sure. But I don't have the same, uh, gruffness as him to keep using that word oh tiny <laughs> uh, don't sell yourself short yeah um but, but anyways like i um that's I, I i appreciate it and i think that's why that scene stands out so much because i feel like i i guess i'm projecting my own interpretation on it or my own feelings on it but i i feel like as the audience that's how we feel like what the fuck are you like right we're ready for some answers and <laughs> that's what that scene personified to me or okay. uh, you know surfaced. the reaction that you got that the reaction that the scene got out of you right okay i was like thank you someone finally asked what the fuck are you that's so interesting to me because yeah. i am just i'm the opposite like i'm really? like i'm so along for the ride really and like i think that <clears throat> maybe it's maybe it's residual stockholm syndrome from lost <laughs> because <laughs> I was conditioned for six years to uh, just go with the flow and not overanalyze the mysteries and, and lost, which I, ne- I never, I didn't overanalyze the mysteries or I didn't let it affect my enjoyment of the show. Mm-hmm. Not to say that you're overanalyzing anything or anything like that. Okay. It's just, that's how my mind has been wired to, uh, to get, to perceive entertainment is <laughs> like, Oh, I don't know anything about what the fuck's going on. This is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just again, just that lost vibe. It just has that feeling. Like, um, in my check-in, I mentioned that I've been listening to a lot of Stephen King uh audiobooks that I I'm familiar with. So I just recently, like this morning, finished Under the Dome. And I tweeted about this at a uh, uh at Tower Junkies Pod on Twitter, but um it's an interesting thing to like read or listen to Under the Dome being a lost fan. Because like like I we both loved lost lost. I credit with, um, kind of reigniting or, or kind of stoking the flames of my Stephen King fandom. Cause it's so like, it, it's so intrinsically tied to the Stephen King feel. Hmm. Um, and the, the writers of lost were heavily, heavily influenced by King. And what's interesting to me is that like, like going from, uh, like uh, when lost was on, I was, I was eating it up and I would read a Stephen King book and be like, Oh, this is great. Cause it kind of reminds me of lost and it's great. Like I love this style of storytelling and then jump ahead to like reading under the dome for the first time. And it's like, Oh my God, this is amazing. This is great storytelling. This is, this is really great Stephen King book. Also it reminds me of lost. Um, or also it could be the next lost if it's adapt- 
adapted to TV. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting because, like, I'm going off on a tangent here. I'm sorry, but uh, the going back and reading Under the Dome, I can tell that King had a lot of. I'm going to circle back and re- relate it to this. Don't worry, um, but I can tell that King was. I I can only imagine he was influenced by Lost to write, like in some parts of Under the Dome, like it's very heavily like feels like Lost, because mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a single location, it's isolated, it's mystery based, it's it's power struggles and everything, ensemble cast, ensemble, yeah, all that. But what's interesting to me is that <clears throat> Lost was influenced by Stephen King. Stephen King presumably drew influence from Lost to write Under the Dome or write pieces of Under the Dome and everything. Um, and then they adapted Under the, Under the Dome into a TV show that was just not to my liking. Like it could have yeah. been – like we championed it as being like this could be – an adaptation of Under the Dome could be the next Lost. Right. And what's interesting to me is that that was back in like what, 2013 I think? Something like that. And – that, yeah, it was definitely 2013. And like, that was such a disappointment. Like, the TV show of Under the Dome was such a disappointment and just wasn't, like, it, it did not live up to, uh, what the source material could have allowed it to be. Not at all. Which, yeah, which is a premium Stephen King adaptation. But also, that was 2013 when we didn't have good Stephen King adaptations. Right. For the most part. So it's interesting because, like, while while reading or listening to Under the Dome, I kept thinking, like, like in the back of my mind, I had that like little nagging voice saying, like, "Oh, this could be such a great TV show. This could be the next Lost." And then, like, what was kind of quieting that voice was the <laughs> feeling that, like, I don't need another Lost. I don't need this to be adapted because Castle Rock is scratching that itch so yeah. well. Mm, that's true. Um, because it's Stephen King. It's lost vibes. <clears throat> and it's just, it's, it's exactly the type of show, show that I would gravitate to and love. And it's just, it's great that we got that out of a Stephen King property, finally. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, so that, anyway, that's episode five, Harvest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's go on to episode six. Yes. So episode six is titled Filter, uh, aired on Hulu August 15th, 2018. Director Kevin Hooks and writers Vinny Wilhelm and Mark Bernadine. Uh, Bernadine. Bernadine. Uh, the plot summary is Henry's son visits from Boston. A funeral stirs up unsettling memories. Um, so Tiny, let's talk about, first and foremost, the, uh, <laughs> What I think is such a cool bit of casting. Uh, did you catch who, like, did you, did it register with you who was, who was cast as, uh, Henry's son? Yeah, it's, uh, Michael, Michael from It, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chosen Jacobs is his name. Okay. Uh, he played Mike Hanlon in It. And what's great is, like, it's, it's, it's awesome. Cause, like, he's in <laughs> It. And Bill Skarsgård is Pennywise. And, yeah. Like, there's a scene where he sees him out the window and, like, he's set, like, it's, it's just like this meta thing that like he feels like uncomfortable around him. Not that it's like, not that it's saying that like, Oh, a different, like a different universe, they're adversaries or anything. Right. But it's like, just like the meta aspect of that is just so cool to me. Definitely. And it was such a surprise too when I first saw it. Cause right. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so it, what did you think of this episode? Um, well, in regards to, um, I liked kind of the sciency fiction kind of stuff of this episode, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, 
I, I liked, you know, towards the end, the whole filter thing and the, the schism and stuff like that was, was really fascinating to me because mm-hmm. I'm always more interested in the science than the spirituality or supernaturalism or whatever. Like the sci- science fiction jumps out to me more, but, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I'm also, you know, curious about the, I like the dynamic of having Wendell introduced mm-hmm. into this dynamic, that, that the whole dynamic of, you know, he's, he's a young black kid and he's with a woman who has Alzheimer's or dementia and she's thinking back to when her young black son, yeah. you know, she's, her time is being mixed up. And so it's like, right. it's funny cause I wonder, you know, I feel like the reason that Henry brought his son there was selfish more than anything. Cause I think he, mm-hmm. he said that, you know, he wants his son to remember his grandmother before she gets really bad. Right. Um, and I understand that notion, but I feel like it's, it's that that decision is only good for he and his son. It's actually, he needs to be helping his mother. And I think adding Wendell into that equation mm-hmm. makes it harder on her. Yeah. And it kind of, that. that just kind of irked me. Not like, I don't have a, a creative problem with it. And I'm okay. not saying that I'm saying, I'm kind of shitty at Henry for doing that sure. to his mother. Like that's kind of a dick thing to do or, yeah. or whatever. I understand his reasons. Like again, he's, it's kind of like Pangborn. I think he had good intentions sort of, mm-hmm. but I think it sort of made a difficult situation worse by bringing him into that equation. Like it's, I feel like it's going to further confuse his mom. Yeah. And it, uh, and I don't know if and this it kind of does. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if this is something that I, like I actually drew from the, from the episode or something that I'm kind of projecting onto it or what have you. But, um, part of me kind of feels like maybe, and again, this could be a misread of it completely, but it kind of feels like, okay, well, he has Wendell there to babysitter while he's off doing his, uh, Castle Rock stuff. His, and that happens. His stuff. Exactly. He does yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I will say that I really liked the, uh, the scenes with Wendell and, uh, um, Sissy Spacek with, with Ruth. Definitely. That was, that was the silver lining of it is that, you know, yeah. he's, he's an inquisitive kid. Right. And so he asks her questions. He asks mm-hmm. his dad questions and stuff like that. Um, I kind of thought we were going to get, get some more background or get some kind of juicy factoids about Henry because mm-hmm. he, his son Wendell asked him about his biological parents. Yeah, that's um, right. And it's kind of dropped. And like, I wonder, oh, yeah. you know, if it's, it's going to come up in later episodes or if it, mm-hmm. you know, another season even. Um, but I thought it was kind of the, his reaction to that where he was like, he was like, um, grandma and grandpa are my real parents and stuff like that. I was like, yeah. kinda, it's like he kind of avoided the question. Right. So is there something there? It makes me wonder if there's something there. You it's know? funny because like my, like, <laughs> my read of that wasn't mystery at all. Like wasn't mysterious at all. I just thought like, like my rea- my note is, uh, quote, grandma and grandpa are my real parents. End quote. And my note is that's pretty sweet. Really? <laughs> like, it's just, it's sweet though. Like, it's just like, he's an adopted, he was adopted, but like he does like his birth parents do not register with him right. like, on his conscience at all. That's true. Um, yeah. Um, but let's let's backtrack a little bit because the episode kind of starts with um uh, doesn't really start with we're going to jump around a little bit here but um okay so yeah there's this whole thing where it opens with with um a flashback to uh Matthew Deaver giving a sermon 
and uh, intercutting with with the kid, kind of rummaging rummaging through stuff in the house uh, after Alan brings him back there um, and everything. And Alan's so desperate to help Ruth. Like I thought that this was really interesting because he's so desperate to help Ruth that he's literally making a deal with presumably potentially the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, and like his like the big thing like he tells. He asks the kid, like, oh, what do, what do I need? Like, how are you going to help her? And then the kid's just like, you need to go. And it's revealed that he, you need to go to Syracuse to get Warden Lacey's car. Right. From the junkyard. And, um, it's just, it's really, uh, kind of interesting because you, you wonder if the kid's fucking with him. Is it like a red herring? Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, I have my thoughts on it. Well, we'll kind of touch base on all that next time because when we review the rest of the season, but, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I, I love the, uh, companionship shared between Pangborn and Ruth. Like, it's very touching. It is. And he's willing to do anything for her. And she I cuts through like his. That gruff exterior exactly which that's that should be his name is gruff we keep using that word right but it's it's the best adjective to describe him Mm -hmm. um so yet that i had noticed that as well that jumps out throughout Mm -hmm. this throughout the whole season he's a very antagonistic character yeah uh everyone he interacts with he's very standoffish and Mm -hmm. and all that i feel like most people just kind of don't like him that much but when he's with ruth he's like he's kind of a sweet guy yeah um, in the next episode, there's, there's more of that. Yeah. Um, it's very satisfying. So mm-hmm. yeah, Scott, I mean, just speaks to Scott Glenn's charisma, um, mm-hmm. acumen as an actor, very, very talented guy. Absolutely. Um, also Bill Skarsgård's performance, um, <laughs> like something that I noticed when, when watching this episode, this is the episode where they, uh, take him to Juniper Hill. Um, but what's interesting to me is that, like, my notes here says that Bill Skarsgård's, Bill Skarsgård's performance is so strong. We're six episodes in, and he's had maybe four lines of dialogue yeah. um, the whole season. But every time he's on screen, he is totally captivating. And just, re- like, he does this thing with his body where he's kind of, like, hunched over. Yeah. It's just, like, it's just really, it's it's really uh, a commanding commanding presence and an intimidating presence for such a small guy. Like there's such this, there's such a sense of power behind him. Right. That's not understandable to us or the people in the show. And I really appreciate that in his performance. It's a little bit monstery, villainous, villainous kind of, uh, body language. Totally. Yeah. Yep. Um, so let's talk about him going to Juniper Hill real quick. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I laughed really hard both times I watched this or a few times I watched this episode because Henry tell it like he is talking to the Juniper Hill nurse and he's like, uh, he points to the kid and he's like, uh, <laughs> the line is, this is, well, here he is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, I just, I love that because it's, I don't know. It's such, it's such a funny way to just consider like no one knows what his name is. He right. doesn't have a name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then we get the shot of the crow or raven or whatever uh-huh. falling out of the sky. That was great. Okay, so uh, let's talk about Alan at the junkyard real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wish, I, like, it, this is just real quick, uh, just a couple, like, references. Like, I feel like it was a missed opportunity that uh, there could have been, like, a, a Stand By Me reference or the body reference. Mm-hmm. Um, 
like have it be Milo Pressman's junkyard, but it wasn't. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Or Christine. Oh, or Christine. Yeah, Christine reference. Yeah, Plymouth nice. Fury in the background. Yep, that could yeah. have been. Yeah. Um, but there was like I when he's when he's telling the guy to lower the car and that he that he wants the car. Um, the guy gets out of the truck and he says, uh, uh, he says, this car is going to fat Tony. And like, I don't know, maybe it's a reference to a King character in another, in another medium or whatever. Mm -hmm. But all I kept thinking was like in my, the back of my head was like, is that a Simpsons reference? (laughs) Um, that's funny. Yeah. Um, Has it seen King being on the Simpsons? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. At least once. Yeah. yeah, at least once. That's what I thought. I think, yeah. Um So maybe it is. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, so before we get into the whole filter stuff, I do want to touch on Molly and Henry. Um Molly is haunted by the ghost or apparition or vision of Matthew Deaver. Right. And she sees him early in the episode. She sees him outside the window of the, of the loft she's in or the warehouse or whatever. Um, which I don't know. Maybe this is a stretch, but I kind of wonder if that was a Salem's lot reference. Um, cause she's on the second floor and there's that scene in Salem's lot where Uh, the vampires outside the window. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. That's why, yeah. Bit of a coincidence, maybe. It's, it's a little bit of a stretch, but yeah, yeah. But I, I really just from an acting standpoint, from a dialogue, mm-hmm. and just filmmaking uh, standpoint, I really loved her confession scene. Yes, kind of. I was in just going to bring that up in the middle of the episode. Just so good. Great performances from both of them. Um, that scene really jumped out at me. And like, how do you, if you did something like that and you carried that for. 20 years whatever yeah. like how would you how do you go about confessing something like that you know yeah like and it's just and how do you react to someone saying mm-hmm. that like is he is he kind of feigning the outrage that he gives her at the end that's a good question um he's like stay away from me or something i don't mm-hmm. remember exactly what he says but he's ob- upset yeah i was like is he I, I don't know i don't know how to feel about it and i think that's a good thing like mm-hmm. it's uh, not mysterious but it's you know I I just wonder if he's reacting that way because he's supposed to or because that's mm-hmm. how he actually feels. I don't know. And I just Millie Linsky is just a great actress. Oh, she's I amazing. Just love her. Yeah. Um, and just the the, the just, it was just very well written as well. It's just a great scene. And, yeah, it's it was like a uh, release valve for tension, mm-hmm. but like it wasn't opened all the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it's so it's such an interesting because like it's they could have played it up for the highest of drama, but they held back a little bit because it's not, it's not finished. Like it's something that's still going to have to be reconciled. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that in addition to telling her or telling him about it, she kind of, uh, blames him a little bit. Yeah. Uh, like in my notes, it's like, uh, like it's, it's really intense. Like she says he died because of me. It was what you wanted. We did it together. When I did it, my hand was your hand. Right. It's like, that's not going to hold up in court. Yeah, not but, so much. Uh, but also, like, man, just that is just nuts. It is. Yeah. And like the, like, I, I love the writing because it's like, how do you, how do you articulate the themes mm-hmm. of, and the, the sensations and everything? Cause she's describing something so supernatural that's, uh, 
something that dictates her entire life, this ability that she has. Yeah. And no one else knows about it except Henry, and he's right. struggling with accepting it, and mm-hmm. you know, as anyone would. Yeah. And it's like, how do you, how do you describe this, and how do you? She's trying to take responsibility, but at the same time, not lose the only outlet she has for this. Yeah. This affliction and this ability that she has. It's, it's, it's a delicate walk, and I, I, I think she worded it the best she could. Mm-hmm. Like you know, I don't think she could have said much else to soften the blow of this news, and she. Yeah, she did. She did a good job, and that's one of like the impressive things about it. Her, the character of Molly, did a good job, is what I'm saying. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. There's just so much to like about the scene. I agree, and like, there's other stuff that happened in this episode. Like, like I neglected to mention when we were talking about the uh, uh, the junkyard, the junkyard scene. Like, that's where it's revealed to us just through the radio that. Juniper Hill caught fire and the kid escaped. <laughs> yeah. I just, I love that, that that's, it's just background noise. <laughs> um, but it leads into the next episode beautifully. Um, also, there's that scene where Ruth is talking to Wendell, um, about the chess pieces and stuff. Yes. And it's such a great, like, lead into the next episode, which mm-hmm. is by far the best episode of the season in my book. Strongest episode of the season. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, like she says, we've had this, co- this conversation before and she says, life, you life used to move forward like people movers at the airport, but somehow I got <clears> off it. Um, and she's talking about using the chess pieces as constants, mm-hmm. uh, to keep her bearing. And like, just like, I, I'm going to gush so much about the next episode yeah, because it is lost. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is lost to the fullest extent. Um, lost by way of Stephen King, which was itself like kind of what lost was um, in a roundabout way. Right. Lots of circular, mm-hmm. circular influence there. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, and, uh, I can't make that segue cause it's spoiler, but let's talk about the schisma and how this episode kind of in no uncertain terms, uh, feels like it's the closest that we'll get to a connection to the dark tower universe. Yeah. Um, first of all, Willie and Odin branch. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that they're in the King Canon. Okay. But they feel so much like Stephen King characters. Absolutely. Like, it's like their characterization and this, the whole like last 15 minutes of this episode with them talking to Henry in the woods, like it's exactly why this work, this show works so damn well with me. Like it could be just like the show could be just like, like lost by way of Stephen King, um, with the chess pieces, the constants, the like stuff like that. Like the, it could be like that, but having this type of characterization and this type of storyline in it, it feels like it feels like Stephen King's writing coming to life, mm-hmm. and it's just it's beautiful. What did you think of uh, their introduction and, and the schisma and everything that happened in the latter fifteen minutes of the episode? Really, really compelling. I think at first I thought when he first comes across them at the campfire was a little bit Deus ex machina ish, mm-hmm. um, a little bit of I don't want to say a lazy storytelling, but just very. Um, uh, just ex- exposition-y and just kind of, I was a little bit like thrown, I guess, by it, but where it led, 
mm-hmm. I think was was ultimately really satisfying and like yeah. uh really obviously just like drove the story a lot. Yeah. You know, it really launched launched you into the next episode or to the the next part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um cuz episode 7 is a bit of a bit of a bus stop, a bit of a chicane in the story. Right. Um as Stephen King is wont to do. Yeah. Um, so beautifully. <laughs> um, but I, 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 like I said, I really, I loved, I think it's, it's, it's a fun, a fun thing that Stephen King likes to do is kind of, he likes to ground his supernaturality, if that's a word. I'm, I don't think that's a it word. It is now. <laughs> it is now. He kind of likes to ground it. I feel like in, um, in, uh, like The Shining, that book is so, I haven't read it since I was 13. I need to read mm-hmm. it again. Um, there's all this crazy shit going on, but then he just grounds the story. And like when, when Jack Torrance is going through the history of the Overlook hotel, mm-hmm. um, and there's like all this, um, there, whenever he introduces like the, the hard science of something, um, in, in his stories, mm-hmm. I, I really, I really appreciate that. Cause it, I'm not a supernatural religious, spiritual kind of person. Mm-hmm. I love science and that's, and I think he kind of appreciates both techniques. I think he, I think he, it's, it's lost in it's a man of yeah. science, man of faith thing. It's like exactly both, both things can equally clash and work together. Mm-hmm. Like some people don't need the explanation for stuff or they don't, they can just follow it through their, through their gut feelings and through their faith or through their spirituality. It, it just makes sense to them and they don't need to know they don't need to know about the schism and all that shit. Yeah. They don't need to, they don't need the science, but then others do. And I think he, he just, sometimes he doesn't balance it well, mm-hmm. but when he balances it well, it's phenomenal. Yeah. And this is like, like they really gripped me with this part, the whole mm-hmm. explanation of the, the science, all the science terms. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of, I don't know. It just hooked me in. Um, do you totally agree? Um, yeah. and, one thing that I want to like, I, I mean, I'm just going to agree with everything. <laughs> said. Okay. Um, I, and I love that. I, I just, I love that aspect of the writing in this, in this episode specifically. Um, did you get a dark tower vibe off of the schisma discussion and the schisma explanation? Um, I didn't like, uh, mm-hmm. kind of like a, a doorway thing, mm-hmm. um, which is what I love so much about dark tower. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't, but I understand that it's there. Yeah. Let me read a, a piece of dialogue. Okay. Um, quote, when he, when, when, uh, when they're explaining the schisma to Henry, they say, quote, all possible pasts, all possible presents, schisma is the sound of the universe trying to reconcile them. Yeah. <laughs> like that is such a dark tower type of thing. And it I is. love it so much. It reminds me of like the thinny, the God drums. Like it's the beam it's just, quakes. Yeah, the beam quakes, everything. Yeah. The beams themselves. Like right. it's just it's so it's so evocative of Dark Tower. And like when this episode aired, there were a lot of like think pieces online that were like, Is this a Dark Tower story in disguise? Mm, yeah. And like the showrunners were kind of coy about it. And they well, they weren't coy about it, but they were just like they're like, Well, you know, we try to fit in anything we can. <laughs> um and it's just I just appreciate so much that the show went there yeah. in a certain respect um it makes you wonder if like castle rock is on the path of a beam yeah oh yeah like 
and like out in out in the woods is where you're under the under the path and mm-hmm. it's like yeah it just makes you kind of wonder yeah and then you go in the woods and it's very dark and then you see <laughs> um you you battle a monster right that you can um, barely see that you can barely see you see your dead dad who says some corny line <laughs> uh oh god that movie and there's a pennywise sign and there's a pennywise sign yeah <laughs> and then and then Roland Deschamps, the last gunslinger uh, who is easily dispatched by uh the monster in the woods that you can't see? Right. Tells the kid that he's brave. Right. Uh, for reaching for the gun and not getting it. <laughs> anyway, we're we're okay. We're not bitter. No. Um. But yeah, what I loved about the evolution of this scene with the the whole schisma and everything, like I I have in my notes this kind of thing, the filter and the mystery surrounding the schisma is so it's it's like lost level sci-fi mystery television yeah and i meant that in the the highest possible compliments like it is so captivating and engrossing and creepy as all hell like yeah i love the evolution of the scene because henry just met these men in the woods while searching for answers about his father and his past he's clearly emotionally kind of compromised um he's cons- and he's considering going into this filter that these strangers created in an RV. <laughs> yeah. And like when he goes in, um, and like it's revealed that, oh, whichever one is the deaf one, um, Odin. Odin. Yeah. He's like, uh, like he says something to him and Henry's like, you made yourself deaf. And then it's so creepy the way he's like, not deaf, perfect. And then he closes it like, oh, it's yeah. so Stephen King and it's so great. Very. Uh, love it. Mm-hmm. Love it. And it, and it really communicates the pain of like being in the filter, like so well, uh, through the sound and, uh, uh, Andre Holland's performance and while he's, you know, cringing so hard. Totally. Um, so yeah, so the end of the episode comes and let's talk about the scene with Pangborn and the kid outside of the house. Yes. So, um, yeah. Uh, first of all, anything more about the schisma? No, no. Okay. Uh, um, so yeah, so the ending, it's Alan comes, tells, tells the kid that the truck will be there in the morning. Um, and then this is why I said that I think you may have misread it because the kid says it'll be a monument to Warden Lacey to everyone who helped put me in that cage. Uh, okay. Yeah. And then that's when Alan sees blood, a trail of blood leading from the house to, to it. Um, and then after he sees that the kid looks at him, and he's like, why would you leave me in that trunk sheriff? <laughs> and like Alan goes in, sees evidence of a struggle and violence. And then end of episode, yeah. like I was so floored by that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a great way to get us primed for the next episode. And it's so great to see, like, it feels like the kid playing a hand. Like he, he, if he, he is effectively terrified Pangborn into thinking that the woman he loves is in mortal danger or possibly dead by giving him, by giving him a bullshit errand. Yeah. Uh, so that he can, because he is bitter about, you know, being locked in a cage for 27 years. Yeah. Uh, how'd you feel about the ending and everything? Yeah. I, I, I didn't, I didn't really know how to react to it. I think, I think mm-hmm. it just kind of threw me a little bit. I, I, I wish I had more to say about it because I, I didn't react the way you did to it because I okay. didn't. It just kind of threw me, unfortunately. Okay. Did my yeah. read of it clear it up for you or Definitely. Did it make you more interested in it? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. 
Yep. Uh, yeah. So should we go on to the best episode of the season? Yes. Okay. And the most Lostian episode of the season? Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, next episode, last episode for this episode of the podcast is episode seven, The Queen, uh, aired August 22nd on Hulu. Uh, Greg Yatanis was the director, and Sam Shaw, who I believe is one of the uh, showrunners, was the writer of it. Okay. Um, it's called The Queen, uh, Premises, Memories, Haunt, Ruth Deaver. So uh, this episode opens with just Ruth... In the, is it an attic or garage? Like an attached garage? It's like a separate garage, like work room. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she's panicking and she's, she's got a gun and then we see her fire the gun and then cut to next scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what I love about the, I love so much about this episode. Like I said, we're going to gush on this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the storytelling techniques and the tricks that it pulls because we're seeing scenes that occurred throughout the first six episodes in different contexts and from Ruth's point of view. And it's just, it's really terrific storytelling as it jumps through time and you really get a handle of like her chronology and her, like what her version of her time hopping was. Just her perspective. Her perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so great. Mm-hmm. I think, I think what jumps out about the episode is all that, but like, I, I think from a creative standpoint, like it must've been so challenging to edit this episode. I can imagine the editing yeah. is just, that's one of the most incredible things about it. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I struggle to focus on or notice when I watch movies and television is the editing. But mm-hmm. I think it, when it's really good like this with a difficult, story to tell and different timelines coming together you really you really you find a way to appreciate it and mm-hmm. it jumps out at you so the editing was money in this episode absolutely amongst many other things yes sissy space is like a tour tour de force for sissy space oh my god like i forgot i, I she wasn't nominated no, I don't for think an so. emmy no but i so wish she was like yeah. she deserved like that was an an incredible performance absolutely um and like, just I, like I put in my notes, like seeing her going through the house through time and memories and placing these chess pieces throughout the house, the way the music is playing throughout it, like everything works together so well. And it's, it's so tragic the way everything plays out in this episode. It's just, it's such a beautifully constructed episode. Um, and it really solidifies what makes Castle Rock, uh, this is going to be a big statement. One of the best representations of Stephen King's work and most, uh, more, uh, more specifically his style of storytelling on screen. Um, and it's funny cause I say that and it's, it's, it's a, it's a big statement and everything. And you can argue that the style or the storytelling, well, okay, this is going to be really reductive, uh, and patently inaccurate, but, it's kind of a cribbed storytelling technique from lost. <laughs> like, yeah, this is the constant essentially. Right. But then again, also the constant, I believe I haven't read it or anything, but I believe it's basically like, like slaughterhouse five by Kurt Vonnegut. I think that that's the type of story that that's told in that. Okay. I think so anyway, but, um, yeah, I don't know how to, I don't know how to piece this together. Cause there's so much right. that all of it's just going to be like, Oh, 
that was a really good scene. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's um, one of the better creative choices uh, amongst all of the great creative choices was that um, Sissy Spacek played Ruth in every scene. So like different mm-hmm. different times where she was 30 years old mm-hmm. and still 60-year-old Sissy Spacek. Mm-hmm. playing in that like so she's it's like it's like she's traveling through time yes um, and there's one scene where and i i love like technically speaking like from a technical perspective this was a an amazing sequence like and it's a simple like um a simple trick to do but like there's a scene where it's a flashback to her being like 30 and she is sitting at her like a vanity and like you see 30 year old Ruth in the, in the reflection and you have, uh, you're kind of at her, sh- like from her shoulder and the camera pans across. And then as you like the, uh, okay. Yeah. So, so it's the scene where Ruth is taking young Henry's temperature and it opens on a mirror showing young Ruth talking to Henry. The camera pans over to Henry then to Ruth on the bed played by Sissy Spacek. It's all in one take, very fluid. Hmm. And it's just like, it goes from the reflection of the 30 year old to Sissy Spacek on the bed talking. And it's just all one continuous thing. I, I love that. Hmm. Um, yeah, I just thought that, that was really great. Um, before we get too deep into this, there are a couple of Stephen King references that I want to bring up. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a news, uh, uh, on the TV, there's a news that's reference, the references dairy. Okay. I think they're talking about the Juniper Hill fire and how they had to get fire, fire department from dairy to come and fight the fire. Okay. Um, <laughs> and one of my favorite, uh, blatant like references and everything, uh, was when she is freaking out and she tells Wendell, like she, she tells Wendell, she gives Wendell money and she's like, when was the last time I gave you a present? Uh, go, go take the bus to the mall at, in Chester's mill. <laughs> um, mm. and yeah, I just, I was like, Oh, an under the dome reference. That's awesome. Mm. And, uh, like it made me think that if there were any novel that deserved a Hulu event series adaptation, uh, in the vein of 112263 or Castle Rock, it's under the dome. Yeah. That'd be a good, yeah, good place for it to land. Yep. Um, yeah, so there's a whole, there's the whole thing with Ruth is looking for bullets. Like she, Mm -hmm. cause uh, the kid is in the house and he is being his creepy self and he's kind of patterning, patterning himself after Matthew Deaver. Yeah. And like, she's confusing him with her or him with, with him. Yeah. And she's trying to find the bullets to defend herself and everything. Um, and she's trying to remember where the bullets were. There's one scene where she sees a vision or a memory. She's in a memory with Matthew and he's basically her subconscious personified telling her that, uh, she had a chance to leave and she didn't leave. She could have left Mm. with, with Alan and she didn't do it and there's no way to change that and everything. And like, he's just basically berating her for her poor decisions and everything. And she's like, you're just my subconscious or whatever. Tell me where the keys are, where the, where the bullets are. And then she finds out where the bullets are. Mm-hmm. Um, they were in the case, uh, that was that he buried the dog and Oh, right. Right. Yeah. And she did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, just this episode. I like how it also, um, it 
instead of just hearing about stories of uh, Matthew Deaver being kind of losing his mind, mm-hmm. um, we get to see it. Like the pic- yeah. the picnic scene, yes, with the, the gun and everything. Scene. Like it's she, um, it's understandable that she's you know she was so protective of Henry, and it's you understand the trauma she went through being the wife of a man like that. Yeah, um, and it it really made you sympathize with her, and it made you because I feel like Henry is not a very likable character. Right, he's just kind of a, kind of a dick, and um. And it, it th- this episode, while it's about Ruth, um, I think it it tells you a lot about Henry as well mm-hmm. and why he is the way he is. Um, yeah, like there's that scene where she's telling, like she's in her memory, she's remembering, uh, and she, he's about to Matthew's about to take Henry out to the woods again to try to hear the voice of God to hear the schisma, mm-hmm. and she's like, she tells Henry, like, just tell him that you hear it, like, right? It's just, it's so. It's it really informs like how fucked up his childhood was. Yeah, and like it's obviously the episode is so much about developing the character of Ruth, but mm-hmm. through that it develops all the other characters too. It almost develops just as much about Matthew Deaver as it mm-hmm. does her. Um and yeah, I mean it tells like, you know, a a ten year old kid, twelve year old, however old old he was, shouldn't have to worry about, you know, how crazy his dad is. Right. He Absolutely. shouldn't he shouldn't have to tiptoe around his dad and the mother subsequently should not have to tell him to do that. Right. right? It's, it's, it, it, it informs a lot about their family dynamic and, totally. um, really, really, really tragic. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's an unfortunate thing. And, you know, you want to, as, as a spouse, you want to stand by your, your spouse and, mm-hmm. and get them through everything. But she was at a point where she should have, you know, taken Henry and left. Yeah. And, and she didn't. I think it's, it's no, it's no wonder that she's, her mind has been so damaged. Her mind is running away from her. You know, I, I don't think Alzheimer's dementia is a genetic thing. It's, it just happens. It's not supernatural or it's not the result of a hard life. But if it were, you could understand why she has it. Yeah. I guess I'll, yeah. I'll put it that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's also a short scene with Molly coming up to the house that I want to touch on. So she's coming, she comes to the house, she's searching for Henry. She's frantic. Um, and I, I love that scene because Ruth is, it's, it's like, it's a fun, like I, I use fun lightly, but it's a fascinating scene because the, it's two women who are in their own horror story that is complete, could not be more different from each other. Mm -hmm. Like, Molly is a, presumably having these um, visions of of uh, of Henry in the filter, and she's she needs to go save him and everything. While Ruth is being hunted, or like she's she's trapped in a house with uh, evil, mm-hmm. and she's kind of going through her mind, like she's literally losing her mind. Not to not to put too fine a point on it, um, but one thing that I really love about this scene. And it's a stupid thing to love about it is that they pull off the quintessential time travel line. Um, uh, basically Ruth opens the door and, and it, what I love about this also is that it doesn't play like how much, like it, it doesn't play up her confusion. Like it's just simple that, 
Molly is Molly's freaking out and she's saying, where's Henry? Uh, we need to find Henry and everything. And then Ruth, by saying the quintessential time travel line of when are we? Mm-hmm. It's her, like, it's not, it's not like a, like, when are we kind of time travel thing. It's when are we because I, I'm losing control of my sense of time right. and you're telling me about my son. You're, you're frantically telling me that we need to search for my son who was missing when he was a kid. So am I back in 1991 or is it now? Like, when are we? Yeah. And it's just, it's so great how it subverts what is a joke of a time travel line Mm. and repurposes it for an intense emotional episode. Right. It's an interesting, interesting use of that line. Absolutely. Not, it's usually a tongue in cheek kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, Oh, I think, not just this episode, but throughout the show, mm-hmm. I think this is probably one of the best, if not the best, representations of of what it's like to have dementia and or Alzheimer's. Yeah, you know, it's like it's like I you can't really know what that's like mm-hmm. until you have it, right? But you never want to have it. You don't want to know what it's like, but so it's it's hard to it's it's hard to translate. It's hard to depict, mm-hmm. right? And I think. What's so great about it is Sissy SpaceX performance, but just yes. just the way that it's woven together. I think I don't know, like the whole the whole part where she's Pangborn and Henry are having an argument, and she kind of enters, and it, it's where he's confronted. It's where Henry's confronting confronting Alan Pangborn about moving his dad's body and how Pangborn signed the piece of paper to have it done for her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's like, what else have you been signing her name for or whatever? Yeah. And she comes in and, and like, you know, in the, in the past episode, we just, she comes in and she's like, oh, the sheets. Yeah. And we have context for that now. Exactly. But it's like, it just makes me, it really, it really, uh, solidified or like kind of, uh, just represented to me what it can be like to have, to be literally, you're, you're, you're contextualizing your, a moment. Mm-hmm. in a certain time like i would be sitting on this couch right now and i'm talking to 32 year old mm-hmm. matt hurt and i look over here and then i look back and you're 55 years old i'm like Whoa, what and it's like the, just how jarring and mm-hmm. insane that must be to experience and then you're yeah. like no it's it's 2035 it's mm-hmm. not 2019 what are you talking about right. and it's like you just jump 16 years and everything's different like that's I, I just I put myself in that situation and like it has to be, it has to be like more than anything scary. Mm-hmm. Like we think of it as confusing, but that would scare the shit out of me. Oh, like absolutely! If I, if I just look over you and you've aged twenty five years mm-hmm. in, a, in the blink of an eye, I'm like, what the fuck? Like that would just. And I think this show represents that really well, and it's it's mm-hmm. it's depicted to the nth degree in this episode. Yeah, and that's that's one thing that I will forever hold this this season of this show in, in high esteem for absolutely agree yeah. and to kind of go back to my or to to kind of reiterate my point that 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 depi- the depiction of dementia and uh alzheimer's and everything like that is another reason why this show is such a great representation of what makes king's writing so great and um have such a lasting effect it's that depiction of this terrifying, like it, it, it's, it's simply put, it is a terrifying 
idea that like this, yeah. like having this type, like having this illness is, is absolutely terrifying. Right. And why I say that it's such a great representation of King's like writing style and like what makes King so great as a writer is that like, this reminds me like your point about it being such a great depiction of, and such an honest depiction of, of dementia and, and Alzheimer's is that it reminds me that like why I think pet cemetery is one of King's best books and why it's so terrifying because it's not Ter- it's not terrifying because a cat come ba- comes back to life. It's not terrifying because the the Micmac burying ground brings people uh, like it's not terrifying because sometimes dead is better. Hmm. It's terrifying because the story like Lewis Creed's descent into madness and his actions after facing a traumatic experience is depicted so authentically in Pet Cemetery. Like when I read that book, I'm not terrified because things come back to life. I'm terrified because it puts me in a position to think what it would be like if I lost people that are the like closest people to me. Absolutely. And it makes me question like how far would I go? How far would I go with limited information to bring people back? And like, like it, like it, it pulls into question into my mind. So many questions and it's it's just the power of his writing and this episode is a good indication of that because it makes it puts you into Ruth's uh mental state her point of view and it is like you said it is absolutely terrifying like mm-hmm. it's not terrifying because she's trapped in a house with someone who could potentially murder her or is uh, is like evil incarnate it's terrifying because she's afflicted with this illness and that's the deepest fear you can impart on an audience is the, the fear of like putting you in the position of thinking like, what would, would, li- what would life be like if you had this? Like, what if mm. this was you? Yeah. And that's, that's one thing. That's, that's what I just love about Stephen King in general is like, he puts you in the character's position. And it's funny, like yeah. we're talking about how great Stephen King is. He didn't write the episode. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but it is like, it is, a great uh um indicator of what makes Stephen King great and yeah. like it's something that they hit the nail on the head with totally um so there is a um okay so i was wondering when the kid is making ruth food and he gives her her sedative and he's kind of like trying to like play nice and everything it's like on one hand cuz the whole time she's confusing him with matthew yeah and on one hand, it feels like he's maybe possessed by Matthew or he's like he's under some kind of trance or what have you. But on the other hand, it seems like he's working to manipulate things to orchestrate Pangborn's death. Yeah. Um, and like, I feel like that read on it would fit with the whole chess motif, um, yeah. that it's going for. But even with the like supernatural overtones, it just seems like it's like, it's like he's thinking he's looking dozens of moves ahead instead of like three moves ahead. Right. So I don't like how did you feel about that? Did you feel like he was orchestrating things in a certain way or was it just like I mean clearly he was, but the mm. reason is why? Does he just want revenge on Pangborn or is it cuz he's fucking evil? Like I don't yeah. know. I I that's that's again uh, to to reference my frustration with that mm. part of the story. Um I don't know, but it was fascinating to see. Like yeah. I I 
I like to think that it was him orchestrating revenge against Pangborn. Um, like Pangborn is the true evil or, you know, he may, he, he bet on the wrong horse. (laughs) Yeah. With, uh, Warden Lacey over the kid. I don't know, something like that. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, it's weird how he, like, how can he read that? How is that he's able to read the situation of what's going through her mind and Mm. the fact that she's confusing him with Matthew and, yeah, it's 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 a it's a wicked supernatural thing, right? To to witness, and when she finds out, when she remembers where the uh, the bullets are, and she goes to dig them up, because um, earlier in the episode we see New Year's Eve, and we see Pangborn like the the dog dies, like the dog mm-hmm. gets hit by a car or a truck, and it's referenced in an early episode that he buried the dog and, you know, she wants him to make sure that it's not coming back to life. Right. Um, but she confuses it with another dog that she had pug, um, Mm. is the dog's name. And like when she goes out to dig up the dog in the suitcase, there's a dog right next to her that's digging with her. Mm. And like, I don't, I would need to watch it again, but I kind of wonder if that's like another manifestation of her memory. Like she's, like she is like her mind is trying to keep her at ease by hat. Like she's it's another constant. Yeah. 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 Well, the, yeah. The dead dog is another constant. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, I feel like it's her. She's her mind is creating this dog next to her digging, digging with her as a comfort because she's in a oh, okay. stressful thing. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about the gunshots. Um, such an amazing way to tie together so much yeah uh so much story because like you you kind of know that like the way everything's falling into place you know it's coming but you don't want it to come so you're like in my head like i'm i'm blocking it out i'm like this i don't want this to happen i know what's happening like i'm finally getting caught up with what's going on i don't want this to happen and then she <laughs> shoots alan pingborn and he's dying it's just, it's gut wrenching. So just tragic. So, so tragic. Yes. Um, and what, a, oh God. And like that, then after that, like the last scene of the episode is she's drawing a bath and she's getting dressed and like the music is, the music is like all stringy and emotional is what I have in my notes. <laughs> um, and it's the day, like she's back in time when Alan returned and it's the day, like I just, I, pitch perfect writing like Mm -hmm. it's so great because we've got it seated in an earlier episode that he's talking about how it's reiterated earlier in this episode as well where he's talking about how he came back after a neighbor said that he heard gunshots in her in her house uh so like you get this supernatural thing where she's jumping through time she fires the gun back in time Mm -hmm. essentially which causes the neighbor to call alan which causes him to come back which causes him to eventually get killed by her right just it's it's so mind bendy and beautiful Mm -hmm. um and then you get the payoff of of his recounting of what happened when he came back because he's like she she looked like she'd been through hell and back and she told me she hugged me and told me uh not to leave and like you get that you get the context of that in this episode and it's just it's such a beautiful way to uh, it really is. end the episode yeah yeah and then the final shot of the episode is focusing on two chess pieces behind Ruth Ruth uh just showing that she's now she's back 
Like she's that's her constant. And right. one of the chess pieces is tipped on its side. Totally. It's so great. It really is. And just the analogy of the title being the queen. Yeah. And in chess the queen can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> the queen that just the queen can travel across the whole board. That just blew yeah. my mind. I figured you that like you already knew that. Or no. I was wondering if you picked up on that. Yeah. Oh my god. That really just yeah. that is I just got a whole new appreciation to the like mm-hmm. Wow, that is that. Well, that's and then amazing. Pangborn is kind of her knight in shining armor, mm-hmm. and a knight can move forward and sideways. Isn't that right? A, more, a knight can go, or is that the, yeah. L, the rook goes in the L shape? The is that right? Rook. Boy, is the rook, <laughs> is the, rook the castle? Is the knight the horsey? Uh, I don't remember. Okay, which one's the nipple? That's the pawn. No, no, no. The erect nipple. The one that can go diagonal. <laughs> That's is... the queen. No, no, no. Queen can go anywhere. Yeah. Like, there's the two... Oh. Like, you got queen and king, and then you got the two on the side, the two side pieces that <laughs> go diagonal. Jeez, I don't remember. And then you have the castles, which can go just... I never really straight. played chess much. Mm. I don't know. Okay, yeah. Anyways. Um, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Chess cast? Oh, God. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I don't know. I wonder wonder if there's uh, an analogy in there somewhere for him being sort of a knight in shining armor. Yeah. Um, If you're listening to this and you are much smarter than we are, (laughs) let us know if we're missing something. Yeah. And uh, and let me know what the erect nipple is, because that's the only way I know how to uh, do it. But yeah. But the, the whole idea of the queen being the piece that can move around like in any way, in any direction, that just blew my mind. That's, yeah. that's really cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, so those are our reviews of Harvest Filter and the Queen, episodes five through seven of season one of Castle Rock. And next time on the podcast, um, we've said this before, we have so much stuff that we can go through in this podcast because it's Stephen King and Stephen King is a god amongst men and one of the most <laughs> prolific <laughs> creators of stories like yes. one of the most prolific storytellers in our lifetime yeah in, in in ever maybe right but uh yeah so we have so many ways but we will be next episode we will be reviewing the last three episodes of castle rock season one that's past perfect which has such a great like like it it has like a mini episode within it and it's i love that episode uh then henry deaver episode nine and the season finale, Romans, it's going to be a big episode. That should be up next week on the podcast. And then I think after that, we will have to start doing our Pet cemetery stuff. Word. Um, super excited to get into I'm, that. I'm looking forward to that myself. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So stay tuned to that. Uh, once again, thank you guys for your patience as we work through our little hiatus and everything. Uh, yeah. We – yeah. So thank you. I was trying to think of another – uh, string of uh, Stephen King. <laughs> let's not. Stuff. Let's end yeah. it. <laughs> I'm really glad that we could have this revival of a podcast here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Me so, too. <laughs> yeah. So just so you guys know, we're not just a couple bags of bones or we're not just a bag of bones here. We are back and we are alive. Um, yeah. Uh, so The mist. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. God. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah like take a stand I, okay thank you guys for listening thanks guys please listen next time despite this train wreck of an ending 
But uh, thank you guys. Uh, uh, long days and pleasant nights. And may you have twice the number. Tower Junkies is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to TowerJunkiesPod.com slash archive. You can also like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash TowerJunkiesPod and follow us on Twitter at TowerJunkiesPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is just a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at towerjunkiespod.com slash donate, or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. For official Obsessive Viewer merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, visit our Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com. For information about our annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Anthology, Matt's solo podcast covering The Twilight Zone, and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology TV shows at anthologypod.com and OVAnthologyPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Music for the podcast is provided with permission from Fingers T on YouTube. Additional bumper music is provided courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. Thank you so much for listening. Long days and pleasant nights.